Hello again, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my inevitable co-host, Teos Avadia. Hey, Teos. Sounds like super hooish. Inevitable. The inevitable. I've been described as inevitable before. and Really? I, I took it as a compliment, although I don't know that yeah. it was. Yeah. I mean, some things you have to take as compliments. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the only yeah. other option is, uh, you know, kind of yeah. scary. I've also been called a raging idiot, which I also took as a compliment. I, I think my favorite forum post remains that one about how they wanted to see you run over a bus for yeah. one of the adventures that at the time was one of my favorite adventures. So Yeah, well, uh, so far I have escaped all buses. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll hope that that continues. Living way out in the country, you don't, unless it's a school bus, you don't get a lot of buses. So, yeah. and I'm, I'm always on the lookout for, for school buses. Uh, you to have avoid to be. That. Yep. <laughs> so, with that bit of silliness out of the way, let's talk about the extensive news that we have for the week. The news just kept on a coming. And uh, the first bit is that D&D has a new senior producer. Lisa Ohanian announced on Twitter that she is now a senior producer for D&D. Uh, you saw the tweet. I didn't. So, let us know yeah. what she talked about. It was it was a super cool tweet. Uh, it was sort of like two images side by side. And one of them, she shares that her earliest memory with her dad is looking at two, the pictures in the 2E monster manual. Right? Okay. Yeah. And then her 12th birthday is a one shot with friends from the Wizards of the Coast store. And then since 2017, she says she's been in at least three games at a time. And her resume is primarily on, on the video game side of things, producing uh, a number of great games at Riot Games. Uh, Valorant, God of War, Call of Duty. You might have heard of those. Uh, and something I thought was extremely cool is that she has a master's in entertainment industry management from Carnegie Mellon, uh, which is a great school. But, but I, I just think it's so cool that master in entertainment industry management, like that was certainly not offered when I was in school. Yeah, I live probably two and a half hours from Carnegie Mellon, so I am now strongly considering going back for my master's in entertainment industry management yeah. because, yeah, <laughs> Lord knows I need it. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Um, but, yeah, congratulations to Lisa. I you know, think that companies should announce when they hire people. That would be cool. But yeah. at least we have Twitter so that people can tell us themselves. Yeah, that's cool. And it'll be interesting to see. You know, some of the first thing that she's involved in as a producer. Yeah, that's the kind of work that I love seeing what people do. Uh, there have been producers in the past at D&D that have made a really big mark. So I'm excited for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and just as we were starting to record, a new D&D survey went live. Uh, it is a short survey that covers both Magic the Gathering and D&D. And after I finished taking it, I saw that it was called the Wizards Sentiment Survey. So if you have any sentiments, not... <laughs> Not not uh, sediments. You know, we're not talking about rocks here. Uh, we're talking about sentiments, what you feel about these things. And it, as Teos uh, wrote, it does ask you how you feel about Magic the Gathering uh, and D and D, assuming that you've played both. So, uh, and then it has the typical question: which What's your favorite deck to play in in Magic? What's your favorite uh, race or class to play in D and D? Yeah, I think a, a lot of folks will come into it since it just came out on the D&D Twitter account thinking like, oh, yeah, ask me about D&D and it's going to be, you know, what color do you prefer to play in your Magic the Gathering deck? Um, and there are also reports, there are a number, this is one of these surveys that has a lot of exit points. So so one of my friends said, I told them my age and the survey was done <laughs> from 50% <laughs> to zero. And it's like, oh, uh-oh, uh -oh. I haven't finished it. So I'm curious whether that'll happen to me. Yeah, after I gave my age, uh, the computer broke. So I don't know if it, <laughs> if there was a, a data input error, but uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you are a creator or a consumer on the DMs Guild, there is some new print-on-demand guidelines for you to contend with. I'm going to let Teos take this over. That is a wise choice. I'm going to pass to, oh, wait, it's just me. So I will talk about this. Um <laughs> Yeah, so in the past, there's been some criticism about how print-on-demand worked, which sometimes seemed like it was like you needed to know somebody or something strange had to permeate and work and the stars aligned so that your product was print-on-demand. Otherwise, it was sort of not possible. Um, so one good thing is that now there are very clear standards. 
But you may not like those standards, which I think all stem from two things. One is that there's sort of a weird way that the DMs Guild works versus how OBS works, the, the larger drive-through side. That's weird. We'll talk about that a bit more. And then two, that I don't think for a lot of products, there aren't huge volumes of printing going on. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be efficient for it to work. So the way they've done this is that there are new product requirements. Your product must be 100 pages or more. It must either already be platinum, which is a small number of products, mm -hmm. or from a creator who has a platinum product. So just the 100 page mark, you know, that's going to separate most of your DMs Guild material out because mm -hmm. only a very few products are 100 pages or more. And then the platinum piece on top of it, that's going to further uh, separate that out to where very few things are being looked at for uh, print on demand. And then the third part, which gets really interesting, you must use an approved layout designers. And they give you four approved designers, which I think one of them already disappeared and was replaced by someone. Um, and there are no applications to be an approved layout designer at this time, they say. So somehow the guild just knew that these four people can do it. Mm -hmm. And you have to contact those four directly. And I guess those people should charge extremely high rates because they're the only four and right. that's a, how economy usually works. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, questions come to mind right away uh, on all of this. Uh, I don't even know if it's worth going into except for the fact that like some platinum products have like 14 or 20 people who contributed design to it. Mm -hmm. You know, do they count as a platinum creator? Uh, you know, all, all of that right. can yeah. be, yeah, and, and it's it's tough because, as you say, the the process has been so strange and changed over the years. You know, at some points, they were begging people to put up print-on-demand stuff. And then it seems like weeks later, if you went to them and say, may I please do a print-on-demand, they would say no. So, yeah. And, know, and then another one would be approved for print-on-demand the next week. And you're like, exactly. what was yeah. that about? Yeah, it's been very frustrating for a number of creators that I know who are what I would say established, proven creators, where they've not been able to get blessed. Um, so at least we have the criteria. But, you know, it was interesting. I was looking at the comments on a tweet, and, and I think the DMs of Guild Folk were, were trying to do a decent job of being very open and, and listening and all that. But, but folks were sort of like, you know, wait, I don't get it. Drive-through lets me do all these things. Mm -hmm. On drive-through, I know what I have to do for layout. I can create the layout, and I may have to pay for iterations of it to make sure it works. But at the end of the day, I can just do it myself, uh, and I can use any number of layout designers. And 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 you're all one company, so what gives? And and what came out of it was sort of that I guess because the guild does not allow you to put your print-on-demand files up yourself, a team member from the DMs Guild OBS team has to shepherd these files which becomes then a costly, lengthy process. And what immediately came to mind for me is, well, so why don't we, why doesn't it work the way drive through works? You're, you're one company. Right. And I, the suggest, someone, of course, brought that up, and the, the answer was, well, we hope to do that eventually. So yeah. it's, it's a bit bizarre, um, but I, I guess in the end of it, it only impacts but so many creators if these guidelines are going to be in place. But it would be really nice if it just worked like drive through mm -hmm. and it could be a model that everybody could enjoy. I wonder if being having wizards, you know, IP involved changes anything. Huh. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, it shouldn't, in theory. I mean, in in, right. in theory, the process of approving your print on demand should not be too expensive or onerous for anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, it may require a little bit of printing back and forth for the person that's doing the product, but that shouldn't be that expensive. And then. It should just be whether people buy it or not, and it should all just work. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we will uh, keep an eye on that and see if it changes again in the coming <laughs> weeks or months. Hey, how'd you like to play HeroQuest on your phone? Uh, I would love to. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. <laughs> Apparently, uh, via the evil <laughs> Zargon uh, of the Hero Quest Twitter account. In late 2021, we may see an app that will allow you to run the game on your phone. They have videos up uh, displaying heroes, maps, items, everything you might expect. The question that we have is, hey, Teos worked on the uh, 
one of the expansions from that, not, not quite Kickstarter, but you know, uh, yeah. project funding. So it'd be great if they would have the expansions up there too. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, the physical rewards haven't come out yet, but I'm curious whether they will add that to the phone version. So I don't know. I'm keeping an eye on that for sure. In Kickstarter news, we have a new winner in the how much money can we get for an RPG Kickstarter. Uh, Magpie Games has decided to crush all competition when they launched their licensed role-playing game for Avatar The Last Airbender. It's been up as of this recording, maybe three or four days at most, yeah. and they're already over $4 million. So that, that pretty much doubles the previous record uh, from MCDM's strongholds and followers. Uh, you know, still 20-plus days to go, probably by now over you know, 35,000 probably backers. I don't have it up in front of me, but yeah. we're, we're getting there. Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a thing. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing to break that strongholds and followers uh, mark in just a few days. And, you know, I mean, Avatar is huge, but I guess I didn't realize it was this huge. Um, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful show. And if, you, if you're a listener and you haven't seen it, you should, you should watch it. It's great. It's full of neat ideas. Um, and, and I can see how it's beloved to a lot of people. But I did not expect this. I also didn't expect that it would be from Magpie Games, which is a small, innovative RPG company, right, with this diverse staff. Um, the game that I've purchased of theirs is Pasión de las Pasiones, which was a Kickstarter, very small, modest Kickstarter mm -hmm. uh, that I haven't yet to receive. It's you know still being made. I, it's, so it's it's just shocking to see that this has gone to this level. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it is odd. What I've theorized, and this proves my theory wrong, is that sort of the the really large uh, brands, the really large IPs, often have a hard time selling games associated with it. Uh, yeah. The like there, we we've had some great Star Trek games, we've had some great Star Wars games, but there hasn't they haven't really gone and like toppled D and D. Or even come close, yeah. Or even come close to toppling some some you know lesser, uh, lesser IP related role playing games, and so I I'm not shocked that it's doing this well. I'm but you know that blows my theory out of the water. Well, I think the question is whether you can sustain it because a lot of fans can put money down for the promise of something, mm -hmm. and the actuality of something is a little harder, right? Like I think a lot of us probably own a Star Wars RPG book. Do we play it all the time? No, mm -hmm. right? Is the reality for most gamers out there? Right, right. And so, despite being an enormous property that's much loved, it just doesn't have tons and tons of play. Right. And and that'll be the question whether a game like this can break out of that mold and create the community that is necessary to drive the game and you know, to where products, people want more products, you know, the whole engine keeps going. We'll see. Yeah. Well, anyway, congratulations to Magpie Games for A, getting the license and then B, absolutely uh, going wild with, uh, with this Kickstarter. Hey, this is a note to you specifically, uh, Teos. I, I see yeah. Latin American Monsters free Kickstarter preview. Uh, so Legendary yeah. Games is launching this Kickstarter on August 17th for 5e Latin American themed monsters, uh, legendary games. If you remember back maybe a year ago, had to pull a Kickstarter for the far East role-playing game when it was perceived to be in pretty poor taste and attempting to profit from the culture of others. Uh, the company is back saying that they have learned from the, uh, their previous attempt and they have nearly 20, uh, Latin American authors, artists, and cultural consultants involved in the project. Yeah, um, it, it looks really cool. Um, I took a look at the free 11-page preview that you can get through drive-through in preparation for their Kickstarter of the 17th. Um, the number of countries that are involved in terms of folklore, Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, it just goes on. Um, so all kinds of countries in Central and South America. Um, and it, they're apparently going to have a Pathfinder version as well. 
So check out the 11 page pre preview. I thought it was pretty neat looking and I'm look looking forward to this coming out just for obvious reasons for me. But, uh, but yeah, I'm excited. One thing I did notice is the preview did not tell me what countries are sort of most closely associated with the monsters that they showed. And I, I hope they add that because that's always a neat part for me because I don't know all the legends of all these different countries and having a country name associated would be great. Hmm. Cool. From Latin America to the Underdark, uh, WizKids <laughs> thinks that you need a full-sized Drist statue. I mean, you do, obviously, right? We all do. This is the hole in our heart that we were wondering what it was. You thought it was the bad response to COVID as a species? No. It was your need for a full-sized Drist statue. So WizKids is offering a 5-foot, 7-inch foam statue of the Drow Ranger, wielding his two swords. Uh, and Teo says they don't really look like scimitars, but at least they are different blades. Uh, yeah, Cannon Nath needs it. Uh, has a removable hood and cloak. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you want more than one, they're available at the low, low price of $1,500. Yeah, so you're kind of flanking, yeah, you know, flanking, Drizzt? Exactly. I'm just shy of five foot seven, and I would sell myself for $1,500. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it's cheap. It's cheaper twice the price, really. I mean, it, this is the gift that keeps on giving. You're never oh. going to regret having spent fifteen hundred dollars uh, for a five foot seven inch. <laughs> this is so absurd. We've reached peak WizKids. It's clear. I mean, I oh. hope because I don't know what could come to top this fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, I mean, I was literally wrestling with my conscience on buying, you know, a deck of magic cards the other day because mm -hmm. do I really need these? Am I really going to use them? You know, do I want to spend these, you know, 30 bucks or whatever on this box? And, and, uh, yeah. And then this came up and I'm like, okay, I, I, yep. I, I am speechless. Yeah, it is something. Um, on the mundane news side, there are also two new sets of figures coming out for critical role that are all about NPCs. One of the NPCs is clearly Matt Mercer. Uh, and then there are two premium figures of a rock and a dragon turtle. And I'm, I'm curious how these all do because, there are some number of collectors that just want to have like the minis that are, you know, characters they know from the Critical Role show, role show but they may not be super applicable. Like their previous monster sets, you couldn't easily use them as stand-in minis. And they didn't necessarily work for me as evocative minis to just ad lib around. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious how well all these sets will do. But, uh, but I mean, people do like their Critical Role, so I'm sure they'll do okay. They, I'm sure they would do just fine. And hey, you can have Drist fight a dragon turtle, apparently. Sweet. Yep. Now, what we need is a life-size dragon turtle. Then, now you're talking. I could ride that bad boy to work. I <laughs> will put on my Ghostfire Gaming hat and say, hey, Greg Marks, welcome to Ghostfire Gaming blogs. Uh, we've added Greg for some thought-provoking and useful blogs. The first, uh, well, his series is going to be on story building. And in the the first one that greg wrote he talks about how to design rules for gear that are still store still story focused uh since grim hollow is a sort of dark fantasy setting we're really trying to highlight not quite low magic but uh you really need to work at overcoming obstacles and just grabbing a magic item to save your life isn't something that's likely to happen. So Greg digs in with this idea of how in movies you see uh, gear being a highlight of grim or dark settings, like improvised weapons. You know, you have to grab the, the leg of the chair and shave it down to yeah. turn it into the stake to shoot it with your crossbow at the, at the bad guy. So, you know, those sorts of things are, uh, are a staple in the Grim Hollow setting, and Greg does an absolutely magnificent job of creating some items that are fun and useful, but not as powerful as a magic item. Yeah, that was a great, great uh, blog. I enjoyed reading it, um, and I like the discussion of properties that weapons could have, like mm -hmm. that they blind, they're blinding, so they can blind you, or they're fragile, so they they will you know, shatter after some amount of time. Um, and then he had some interesting 
kind of mundane equipment, things like quiet shoes to help you sneak or a skull cap that protects you once from a critical hit. And then the skull cap is wrecked. I thought that was pretty fun. Mm -hmm. Also known as a bucket. <laughs> well, this brings me back. The reading this brought me back to two different memories. One was how important it would be to have like a helmet in early mm -hmm. play, early editions of D&D. Because something like green slime would hit you. And if you didn't have a head, a, a head protection, a helmet, some kind of thing, you, you would immediately be taking damage, which was really bad with things like green slime. So you could just tear away your helmet and, and your DM would have to begrudgingly agree that, okay, you know, you're all right for now. Um, and then the other thing I thought of was the classic end of the A series of adventures where you are captured and you have no weapons. Mm -hmm. And the various encounters as you go through this underdark cave complex provide you with little slivers of weapons, you know, a bone that you can sharpen or whatever. And you're like, and you're so excited. Oh, I've got some kind of weapon like thing. And it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, good on you, Greg. Thanks for, uh, thanks for this great initial blog post. And we're looking forward to more. Uh, speaking of blogs, the id dm takes us to school on strixhaven uh the id dm discusses several session zero opportunities for your upcoming strixhaven games including things like freshman orientation <laughs> detention like in the breakfast club and and a ton more yeah some really neat ideas here uh written with a lot of love so i, I enjoyed looking at the id dm who's been blogging for ages oh yeah and seeing these ideas he's clearly very excited about strixhaven uh, which I know a lot of my friends are too. So it's, yeah. it's a very useful blog. Check it out. Awesome. And if you're into celebrities playing D&D, &D, we've got another uh, opportunity for you to see the likes of Nathan Fillion, Michael Rooker, and Flula Borg from the Suicide Squad playing a trio of goblins in a reverse Lost Minds of Fandelver adventure where the goblins are attacking the caravan. Uh, the DM, Riley Silverman, does an amazing job of hurting the cast through a very entertaining experience. And that's yeah. at the nerdist.com. I was fortunate to be on a DD beyond uh, stream with Riley and I'm like, okay, Riley's cool. And then I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize Riley was that cool. <laughs> You're yeah. now the DM for this group. And they are all really funny. Uh, Nathan Fillion is surprisingly reasonable. Michael Rooker and Flula Borg are surprisingly not, uh, <laughs> Right off the bat, Flula hears rogue and says robe and basically becomes a robe like that. His, his goblin is a robe, just, you know, like bathrobe. And there's a lot that goes into this discussion of the bathrobe and it's all very funny. And, and they, you know, the Riley has to do their best to manage all of this situation. It's really quite fun to watch. It's a short sequence, but, uh, but highly entertaining. I was surprised at how good this was. There you go. Uh, in convention news, we're seeing conventions tighten up their COVID requirements. Um, so if you are planning to attend any of these summer, uh, fall, or even winter conventions, something to keep an eye on. Uh, Gen Con is now requiring masks at all indoor or crowded outdoor spaces. Uh, and they've removed the idea of the wristband that lets you not wear a mask. And they may even go as far as requiring vaccination. Uh, Origins. Uh, has held its uh, held its line and has become pretty defensive online uh, <laughs> about their their choice of uh, restrictions. Yeah, yeah well, well, it'll be interesting to see because a lot of these states are seeing soaring rates. Uh, unfortunately, as the Delta variant just tears through everything, um, my in-laws just got COVID despite being vaccinated and, and had a pretty rough time of it. Though they now seem to be turning the corner. Um, so it's just, it's, it's rough to see these large conventions, you know, towing the line and, and, and maybe some of the wording in what Gen Con said almost made me think that they feel like they legally can't require vaccination, something like, I don't know what yeah. the basis for that is. I don't understand those, those delineations, but there, there may be some of that to it, but, but it's, it's tough in this industry when you want to celebrate people getting together and, and, and you want to celebrate these conventions. I'm a big fan of origins. I'm a big fan of Gen Con, but there's this human aspect and you wonder, well, how many people would have to die for these events to go off? Yeah. Uh, I'm not really happy with any number greater than none. So. Right. Right. Exactly. And I mean, there, we would joke 
two years ago or and before about pe- all the people that got sick after attending a convention and some people you know pretty seriously ill with with even just flus and, and so yeah. on and yeah. so you take something that's x times more deadly and vicious than than that yeah. and uh, it's it's a serious uh problem that needs to be addressed yeah um I am happy that, you know, you and I currently are slated to appear at GameHole Con, um, mm-hmm. and that requires vaccinations, which is why we're on board with it. Yep. But, you know, even then, we're, we've got to stay looking at these situations and see, because the, the Delta variant is, I, I read a report today, maybe one of the most contagious vaccines ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's still and it's or vaccines, viruses. Viruses, right. And it's still, That's what they call them. And we're still learning, you know, exactly how uh, how deadly and how transmutable it is so uh we'll see but if if uh gen- if game hole con ends up happening hopefully we will see you there because we are running events and panels and so on uh we will have a mastering dungeons live recording and panel on thursday Ooh, people get to see the sausage get made that's right this beautiful beautiful <laughs> sausage that we have uh Teos and I are also doing a panel on Saturday with this gentleman named Mike Merles. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't yeah. quite remember how to pronounce that. Uh, yeah. Mike Merles, we will be talking about the fine art of the micro dungeon. And yeah. we and are we also both agreed that Mike will do all the work. Oh, we're going to. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to say, uh, excuse me, Mike, could you, could you quiet down for a moment while I, <laughs> while I, while I impart my knowledge of D and D that's mm. not something that I see happening too often. That's a good point. Uh, and we're also going to be in a game together, a D&D live stream for Extra Life, along with uh, Bill Benham, Elisa Faden, Alan Patrick, all DM'd by the... Wait, wait, did you say Alan Patrick? I did say Alan Patrick. Oh, you... that's yes. good news. Yes, uh, Alan and I will be in the same place at the same time. It's pretty cool. Uh, Your so... daughter's going to want a picture of that. Uh, I, I know. And all of this will be DM'd by the inevitable Claire <laughs> Hoffman. Uh, who yeah. I love as a DM. So that's one happening. of my favorite people on Friday. Now that you're doing some things without me, I hear, I mean, you know, you're invited. Uh, I'm doing a DM D and D not D and D. I'm doing a live aliens stream, uh, which is really excited. I've played the game once. So I need to brush up on my alien skills. But what I do know is that someone's going to murder somebody, uh, repeatedly, mm-hmm. uh, the players, uh, myself, banana Chan, Matt Forbeck, who I've played with before, Tony Winslow Brill, very cool. And the DM is Andrew Gasco, who worked on Aliens. Uh, so that's super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, then I'm going to run the Clockwork Tower, the adventure that I wrote with my son, that uh, someday will get crowdsourced if I ever get through layout. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to happen. be very exciting. Um, and we've been talking to some other people about a possible panel. And what else are you doing? I am running two writing workshops. Uh, nice. I believe on Thursday morning and Saturday morning. So it'll be a three hour workshop where the people who take part will submit some sort of writing, whether it be a game, you know, game design, adventure design, something like that. Uh, I will look at it. We will distribute it to the other people on the, uh, in the workshop, and then we will discuss it. So, you know, hopefully we, I will learn something. The people who are attending will learn something and I'm always looking for new writers uh, for uh, for projects so that this is one way in which I can pretend to be teaching while really uh, for my own benefit, uh, getting some some uh, capable writers. Well, that means that it can be to the benefit of those writers. So sign up for those sessions. There you go. And with the news safely tucked away, we can now talk about our main topic for today and for probably a few weeks, which is going to be running and designing introductory adventures for D&D. So Teos and I are players, we're DMs, and we're designers of not just D&D, but of other role-playing games and other tabletop games even. Uh, Now, we recognize that having a dedicated, passionate fan base is important to the hobby and to to the success of the industry. we need those players that have been playing for 30 years to continue to be evangelists for the hobby. Mm-hmm. But if anything, but specifically a game like D&D is going to maintain that health and success, new players must constantly be coming into the game. 
and new DMs need to uh, hurl themselves up up, up onto <laughs> the shore of the game and take those steps to run games. So creators of these games, whether they be small creators like Teos and I or large creators like the publishers of games, need to provide need to provide some on-ramps into the game. Actual play streams, podcasts, all of those things are great for showcasing the game. Watching games is a wonderful pastime, but some care must be taken as we help new DMs and players get acclimated to actually sitting at the table, rolling dice, and telling stories. Yeah, and, and it's fascinating to me when I think back across many years of my playing where I've often tried out new RPGs and or gone to conventions to have a one-shot game for a system I didn't know. And sometimes that goes great, and sometimes it's really quite bad. Like, I may have a good time, but when I assess it, when I turn on my designer, my product producer, you know, line manager type of brain, and I think of that experience, I think, this was pretty awful. Like, this did not hit, even if people had f fun at the table, this did not meet the goals of what you would want for an introductory experience, right? And we even see that with the D&D adventures, and we're going to talk about this more, but, you know, what is a perfect introductory D&D adventure? Um, if, if, a, if an adventure is being given away to a new crowd, mm -hmm. how, why is it good or bad? Like, that's a fascinating thing to dig into, and so we'll, we'll build the, the basis for that, I think, in this yep, series. Yep. So we're going to cover a lot of different things uh, in this, this series that, that we put together. Uh, but we need to probably start at the beginning. So we want to take an episode or four to talk about uh, those people who are taking those first steps as a DM. So we'll discuss things to keep in mind as you prepare to DM your first session, you know, what you should do in your first session. Um, and then we'll get work our way up to the point of discussing those introductory adventures that people might use or creating your own introductory adventures. Um, to make you your best game mastering self. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about things you should do when you decide to become a DM. This is all going to be done under the auspices of you running a home game. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to talk about conventions or like uh, adventures league or organized play or anything like that. Uh, we're going to keep it, uh, you know, within the confines of you DMing, at someone's home, your, your own or someone else's with, with a, you know, a small group. Uh, so before your first session, the most important thing to know is you can do this. Uh, <laughs> no DM is great at everything. I don't care who you are. Uh, right. And DMing draws upon skills that many people already have. You know, if you're a teacher and you've not perfected, but, you know, if you've become strong as a teacher, you have most of the skills that you need to be a DM because you're good at managing multiple tasks at the same time, dealing with multiple people at the same time. Uh, you're, you're most of the way there. Uh, you yeah, to, I would even say that if you're a teacher or if you're somebody who, let's say, at work gives presentations or anything like that, you're way ahead of the game even mm -hmm. uh, because – one of the lovely things about being a DM is that you are the precious commodity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you see this all over the place where, where people are just like, you know, I just need a warm body to sit in that chair and run this game for me and I'm going to be happy. It's a low bar to, to, to start at. Yeah. And so you almost can't lose. Uh, any losing will probably be in your head through your own self-worry <laughs> really mm -hmm. is the reality. Sure. Um, and when we're trying to build good experiences – really everything about it should be to lift up that DM so that there's a greater and greater success chance. And similarly, if you're the DM that we're talking about, then you want to do things to increase your likelihood of feeling good about it. But it is important to start. And I agree with you. The number one thing is you should be confident because people want you and need you. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be forgiving of you. They're not expecting perfection at a typical home game. Right. Um, so you, you have a lot of room to, to work with. Mm -hmm. And, it's pretty damn fun. Uh, I know lots and lots and lots of times I've talked to people about DMing, especially when they're DMing early in their DMing career, and, you know, and they'll run a three or four hour game. And then they won't be able to sleep for, for three hours because they're just so excited 
about yeah. all of this. You know, that sort of rush is real. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's a really entertaining, fun, creative. Uh, it it's just it's cool to do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's wonderful to see DMs take off. Like I've had DMs, uh, you know, players at tables and organized play programs at a store that were like, could we DM? And it's like, yes, yes, you can. <laughs> and then you would just watch them take off. And, and years later, they're DMing and having a blast because it's, it's so much fun once you get into it. Yep. So before your first session, the one thing that you want to do once you decide to do it and realize that it's going to be awesome is to get out of your mind by, by, by working on it, all of the logistics that have nothing to do with the actual game itself. So where are you going to play? Are there going to be distractions at this place? If so, how can you minimize those distractions? Uh, something is, as simple as, are you going to have dinner during the game, before the game, after the game, are you going to have snacks? You know, if you play on a Friday night after work and everyone's coming from work to the game, food becomes an important issue. Yeah, true. So do everything that you can to take care of those issues ahead of time. Let people know, hey, if it's at your home, say, say, hey, we're going to order pizza or we're going to, you know, do this for our food or everybody bring a certain thing. We'll eat beforehand, get that all out of the way, and then we can move forward. Um, if you use Internet-based tools, will there be Internet available? Right. Uh, there's a location that we sometimes play around here where there is no Wi-Fi and and coverage is very spotty at best so you know people might want to bring a printed version of their character mm -hmm. rather than uh yeah, rather than using dnd beyond or you're going to want your adventure uh, you know in in a hard form rather than on the internet um, this is something i learned when i was doing you know sort of social gathering parties not for gaming or anything but just that do these things set up these logistics make your choices and then don't worry about them Mm -hmm. Because you're going to have fun no matter what. And then at the end of the session, you can say, hey, what should I do differently next time? But just like you, the point of this step is to get those things down so you're not going to worry about them. If you continue to worry about them, you'll undo the benefit of this, right? The, the best thing is make these decisions and then don't worry about whether you chose the perfect snacks. There's no such thing. It doesn't matter. You've right. chosen snacks. You're done. Like forget that. Move on to the game. Right? Yep. And if, you, if you're the DM but you have a player who revels in such planning, let them do it. You know, and as long as it's uh, applicable to you and it's fine for you, you know, let them take care of that. And then you don't need to worry about it anymore. Uh, let the players know what they need to bring. Uh, if they have dice, do they need to bring dice or not? If they have, you know, do they need pencils, pens, yeah. any of those things? And also more importantly, what not to bring. Um, say you're running for new players and you're new, newish to the game. And you, you, are part of a regular board game night and you're decided to do D and D instead. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen is somebody ends up bringing a board game <laughs> or just bring something they think is cool, but it takes away from what you're about to do. So mm -hmm. just, you know, keep these things in mind and maybe just say, the only thing you need to bring is blank. I'll have everything else. And that gets across the point that you, you've got it under control and, uh, you won't get distracted by, you know, the one player who knows D and D brings all 72 of their current books, which intimidates the people who yeah. haven't played, yeah. uh, you know, all of those things can, can not ruin a night, but they can distract from what you're yeah. trying to do. All right. So those are getting those logistics ahead of time, where you're going to play, when you're going to play, how long the session's going to be. You've got all of those things out of the way. Uh, now you can communicate with your players, not only to tell them what you're going to do, but to find out what their expectations are. Yeah, and I think a big part of this is there's a lot of opportunity here where you can make the game better by giving players a stake in it. Um, an adventure can be super fun if we just go through and we fight the, the kobolds and you know, fine. We just, we all threw dice. We all had a good time, but it's even better if we know more about what the players want out of the experience ahead of time. 
And that includes things like, do we want to start each session by hanging out and talking about D&D news? It's like, I often play with a bunch of people who are interested in what the industry is doing. And so we kind of have 15 to 30 minutes of chatter. And then one of us will go, all right, game time. But socially, we kind of need that. Right. And it isn't necessarily just around D&D. You might need you might want to talk about each other's jobs or lives or whatever. Um, if, if the game is for kids, sometimes they need a few minutes to run around and play together and show each other stuff in, in you know, one kid's room. Stuff, and then they come back into the table and you're like, all right, now we begin. Yeah, it's it's again, not a lot different from teaching uh, where you you have to do certain things, but then you have the rituals that bring everything into focus so you yeah. can, you can continue with what you want to do. Uh, so another uh, question they have is, or you might have for the players is what do they want to get out of the game? Um, have they been watching a stream that is very uh, high on narrative creation and very low on rules uh, talk? And if that's what they're expecting, that's sort of the game that you want to present at first. You can always add rules later, but that's going to be where their mind is set. And or the opposite could be true. If you're playing with a bunch of tactical war gamers who want to see uh, what D&D is as a rule set, that might be what you want to focus on first right. and then introduce those narrative elements later. An important consideration there is how many people are new versus established. Like you might be a new DM for players that are established. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly fine. Um, but you often have some number of players that know less about the game. And so having that focus to say, okay, you know, you and you are newer. We're going to make sure you're supported. Hit me with your questions. You know, everybody, let's give them space to, you know, figure it all out. Um, and thinking through how to showcase, because the more that a system is new for players, the more that you want to think through how to teach it to them. And this gets into that whole idea of, you know, what a product can do is that often products forget that the players, that many of the players will be new, right? Whatever you might use may not have anything in it that really tells how, how a new player can do things. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't want to depart from this too much, but just there was a, a time when in fourth edition, uh, Chris Tulak, who headed up organized play, wrote up a learn to play scenario and really broke it down as the first thing you're going to do is you're going to do skill checks and you just talk to them about that part of the character sheet. And then there's going to be this combat and you can talk to them about their first attack role. And it was almost like sectors of the character sheet were lighting up and being used through the play experience. And that was really eye-opening for me. Like, oh, yeah, that is a lot easier when you're not dealing with the entire character sheet. You're just zoning in on a little piece at a time. And now, I always now, I will, I will now always use that as my technique for when I create experiences for new players to just highlight those little pieces. All right, now we're making skill checks. See that little rectangle on your sheet? That's where we're focused. Here's how it works. And then they start realizing, oh, yeah, it's D20 plus this thing on my sheet, and I'm using a sector of my sheet depending on what kind of thing it is. Oh, great. And it becomes secondhand nature before you know it. Yep. So as you, as you communicate with players to find out what their expectations are, um, you can then communicate back to them so that they know, based on what you've heard from them, what they can expect when they start to play. Uh, another thing that you might want to use either before the game or at your first session, or at least talk about, are the safety tools like lines and bales and, and the X card and so on, uh, so that they are aware that these things are in play and that they can feel safe uh, coming to your game and that they will have some sort of control over uh, the content, the narrative, and so on. Yeah, and, and it's easy to, to want to think of situations where you don't need this. Like, oh, I know the players, or um, the, the, the adventure doesn't really have any problematic content. But the reality is it's always good to bring these up uh, mm -hmm. because it will, it will just establish in everyone's mind a, a pattern, an understanding of, of proper behavior, and that there is recourse for it versus having to put up with it. Uh, and the same thing goes for, for sort of social contracts. So establishing that you as DM can say, hey, 
we're going to talk about some aspect of the game that I'm not super loving and that the players can do that as well. So that can be something like maybe someone's always talking over someone else. Right. And this is just something that happens, a social thing. And, and the person may not notice they're doing it, but to just talk out loud about the fact that this is something we can all address, these kinds of things, wakes everybody up to that understanding. And then if an issue comes up later, you're, it's going to be much easier to bring it up because you've had that foundation. Right. Just to reinforce what Teo said, it doesn't have to be content warnings. You know, it doesn't have to be triggering words. It doesn't have to be those things specifically. It could be someone is playing a game on their phone and they've got the volume up and they don't even notice. Right. right. That, that can be something where you need to, to stop the game. And if you let people know ahead of time that it's okay to stop the game, to, to adjust these things, mm -hmm. then it's less abrupt and sort of less uh, conflict oriented when it does happen. Yeah. And it just establishes we're all here as a group to have a fun experience. So if something is throwing that off a bit, I'm going to say something and you can also say something. And that, that alone, because something will always come up. I mean, no, no group is perfect. I'm not a perfect player. You know, there's always something where somebody could say, you know, whenever Sarah comes up with an idea, Bob, you immediately roll dice on it. Mm -hmm. But Sarah called it. So let Sarah do the first roll. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and we've all had, well, yeah. I don't know, we've all, but experienced DMs who've DM'd for a lot of different players and a lot of different situations uh, have seen all sorts of behavior that isn't even meant to be rude or off-putting by the people. They just, it's how they are. Uh, yeah. And so they just need to to be told exactly what yeah. Teo said. Uh, in, 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 in the least... Uh, conflict-oriented way possible. Right, right. So and you've got a good note here that when you're communicating, and we're, we're, you know, all of this is about communication ahead of the first session, right? And your, your last point here is to tell people, what will this first time we get together be? Is it what we would call a session zero? Is it character creation? Is it play? Like, that's a really important thing both to think through yourself and tell your players so they know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just, they may be just as nervous as you are about sitting down at a table and becoming another character and telling a story and being part of this group. So the more you can reassure them and give them what's going to happen, you know, the, the, better, the better off everyone is. So when you get to your first session, uh, you can handle any of the communication that we just talked about that was not done before the session. Uh, the more you can do before the session, obviously better, but if you do need to set, you know, set expectations, if you do need to deal with food, if you do need to handle safety tools, do it then. Uh, there is scads of advice out there available, including on previous uh, episodes of this show that talk about the importance and the contents of the session zero. Yeah, uh, we we've even seen yeah. some material in books like um, uh, Van Richten's, which we just reviewed, right? It, it yep. addressed session zeros as well. So there's some useful yep. uh, information there, especially around horror games, but just in general. Yep. So we, we don't want to do a whole episode on just session zero. Some of the stuff that we talked about is already included in that. But you can read up about that and, and be ready if you do a full session zero, uh, what that entails. Now... In terms of the content that you're going to run at your first session, this question always comes up, and I know we've discussed it before, but we need to discuss it again. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're teaching new players, uh, and if you are new yourself as a DM, do you use pre-generated pre characters, or do you take the time to create new characters from scratch with your players? Uh, there is no wrong answer in general, but there are wrong answers depending on your style, the player's needs, and so on. So yeah. let's, let's discuss that. Um, do you want to, you want to start or do you want me to? Uh... No, go ahead. Okay. So most of the time I prefer to teach new players with pre-generated pre characters. Um, A, because the game that they generally watch if they're watching streams is not character creation, it's play. And that's mm -hmm. what they want to do. Uh, the fun of the game for a majority, if not a high majority of the people 
is the play, not the character creation. There is a place for character creation, however. So what I prefer to do is run a quick session with pre-generated characters, uh, which teaches people the rules, gets them into the stories without focusing on the bits of rule uh, knowledge that are helpful but not necessary to play the game. It also helps then if after a session or two or three, they do want to create their own characters, they now have a frame of reference for what characters can do because they've watched the paladin pregen do his thing. They watched the rogue do her thing. They've seen it all happen and they can say, oh, that was cool when the wizard cast that right. spell. So I want to play that. Uh, mm-hmm. They then have some knowledge from which to build a character, which then you don't have to explain in grim and grisly detail, <laughs> which can put certain players off if they have to sit and listen to this explanation. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that walking character, walking players through character creation is hard. Like we could do a show on that alone because it's really hard to keep everybody on the same page. One is you usually don't have a book for every single player. And so just that process of trying to keep everybody moving forward and not to end up with one player that's done, especially when you have spell casting classes and another player who needs another 40 minutes to get done. It, it's really, it's sort of a mess of a process. And, and I, I've never felt super great about it. Um, probably the closest I've come to that is an all D&D Beyond character creation or other online tool where you're just making your character online and you can literally, everybody can be on a device and mm-hmm. go screen by screen. And then you make it through. But but even then, it is it is just hard. And spellcasting particularly because all classes have meaty amounts of spell casting in fifth edition. There's no quick process to looking through all of the cantrip possibilities and all of the spells. So yeah, I, I tend to like, I tend to f- be on your side of things where, where I think it's better to somehow play first with the pregen and then give them a reason why they can swap out who they're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that can be that very quickly on in the story, you you know, you reach a town and in the town, there are other adventurers as well. So then they can decide, do I just want to customize my character or do I want to just dump it and be something else? Yep. Yeah. And if you do go the character creation route, try to limit the choices that they have to make. Taking that survey today, it said, which race do you prefer to play? And the list of races that you <laughs> could play was like four columns. Yeah. And having that sort of choice to make right at the start, if you're new, you you can't even say, you know, dwarves are short and good with axes and elves are light and, and good with magic. You, you know, you can't do that for 27 different races and yeah. try to explain it all. Uh, so if you do go the character creation route, try to limit those choices. Um, you know, use the basic yeah. rules to start with. Yeah, and that's exceedingly hard in D&D Beyond. Like just even trying to get uh, folks from middle school game to remember to turn off things like Eberron and Unearthed Arcana and, you know, Magic the Gathering and all that. It it was so hard. And and people showed up with, you know, I have the mark of blah, blah, blah for my character. I'm like, ah, okay. Yeah. I'm just going to ignore that. <laughs> Fine. Right. Exactly. But but it's really hard. And and it also, it, it, it has that problem where your first, you often want an iconic D&D experience. And you might end up with, you know, a Yuan-Ti and a Knoll and a Goblin show up at you know, as the party of characters. And that might not be very, it might be fun, but it might not be iconic. So pregens let you get past all those problems. And then later you can handle real character creation. Mm-hmm. And if you do go the pregen route, try to tie them to the adventure that you're playing in some way. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, super tightly meshed with the story of the adventure. Uh, You don't need to be relatives of the key players in the town, say. But having a backstory or flaws or uh, traits that tie into the adventure gives new players a line that they can follow if they get lost. 
and they can always look at their character sheet and say, oh, wait, I'm a folk hero from this town. Mm-hmm. People know who I am. So instead of me having to navigate these social encounters, I can just walk into the tavern and people will talk to me. Um, yeah. And I can play up on that part of my background. Yeah, and the original box set, you know, what was funniest to those, those pre-gens were for that first box set. But then what was hilarious with those pre-gens would show up in all kinds of other play with these ideals and bonds and flaws that were tied to things that didn't exist because they were from the yeah. starter set. It was so funny to see, like, great, you know, that's yeah. going to be helpful. Hmm. Yeah, that that is that is one of the pitfalls of using pre-gens from a different uh different set uh you want to talk about collaborate collaboratively defining the world which is a great yeah so this is something that i love to do uh and folks who know me know i've created a free product for this that you can get off my website uh, if you join the mailing list uh and i talked about it on the dragon talk podcast because it's something that really blew my mind when i used it with the rpg dresden files and it's the idea that you give the players a stake in defining the world to some extent um and so you can check that out for a real in-depth analysis of it. But in, in general, this first session is something where you can ask your players to the degree that you want to uh, for input on the game. The reason to do that is because the more that players are involved, they're going to remember those things they all together said and they will really know your world. So if you think of a very classic D&D experience a lot of us had is we'd show up at someone's house and they would have a binder of stuff of their world. And we knew none of it. They were super excited about it and they'd talk about it and it would all go over our heads and we'd just have to play to figure it out and we would never get through that whole binder. Mm-hmm. Contrast that with if we were to sit around right now and say, tell me something about the jungle, right? Um, how how do the 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 villages that border this jungle um how easy is it for them to move from one village to another and if you just answered a few questions like that that reality that you help define is going to get cemented in our brains you know it's very dangerous because of the wild beasts all right we got a wild beast problem uh, the terrain is constantly shifting. Ooh, that could be magical, or maybe it's just that it grows quickly, you know, but we start defining things. And you're going to remember those things you said on this very first session of play for a really long time. And so thinking about some aspect of this, and it can even be with a published campaign, you know, on Dragon Talk, we used example of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden when we talked about this subject. You can just say things like, you know, which here are the, the 10 towns, which of these sound most interesting to you? And the top three are we're going to be involved. But by virtue of that discussion, everybody's going to remember the 10 towns a little better, right? So this kind of thing is something I'm really big fan of. Um, I also use this when I ran um, the Tomb of Annihilation campaign for a home game group. I asked them things like, do you want it to be hard to move around the world? Like, do you want to work on survival, you know, tracking your supplies, uh, dealing with whether you have clean water. And they were like, no, no, we don't. So it's like, great, we're just not going to worry about that. Like, you don't want that, so I'm not going to lean into that at all. Um, you know, you might get lost, but it, we're not going to track days of water or food or anything like that. You know, we'll, we're going to move around the map and, and focus on the places we get to. And then it was things like, do you want, you know, like lots of tombs? Do you want like deep Indiana Jones experience? And like, yes, yes, we do. I'm like, all right, great, I'm going to add extra tombs to this and make for more of that. And so just some questions that help you know what players want out of the campaign helps you know where to spend time. Mm -hmm. And if you think of a project like product, like Tomb of Annihilation, where you have lots of different things on the map that you may or may not do rhyme with all those locations you may or may not use, you know, that all really helps you understand how much time to spend in one place or another. Um, Descent into Avernus, right? Is this all about Baldur's Gate or all about Avernus? And understanding what your players like helps you run it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two points on that real quick. Uh, the fake games I've played, the character creation was the most fun part of the game. <laughs> yeah. It's almost the opposite of D&D, right? D&D is like, okay, get through character creation so you can play. With Fate, it was like, oh, we had so much fun creating our characters together and and setting them in the world and creating the parts of the world that we were allowed to create. It's like, I want to do that again. <laughs> yeah. And, I can uh, still tell people exactly the Dresden Files setting 
we all created collaboratively. Like that's how much it stuck in my brain. I can't, I can't forget it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it's no, Oh, what's the tavern owner's name again? You know, it's, yeah. we created this tavern owner. This yeah. is what we did at Will Doyle's behest for the first adventure in the uh, Oracle of War campaign, where mm -hmm. the group gets to create this contact that they all have a connection to in one way yeah. or another. And so they create the, the the person, this NPC who plays an important role in the, in the whole campaign, and everyone gets to choose one connection they have to to that person, yeah. uh, that NPC. And and so you remember that NPC then because you helped create uh, that that NPC. Yeah, it's great. So you play out your first session. Um, what we've skipped over here is what to run because we're going to talk about that later. So at the end of your first session, generally uh, maybe 24 hours later, send out a communication recapping the session. You can talk right at the end of the session, you know, get everyone's feedback, their, their instant feedback. But a lot of times the instant feedback is still informed by sort of the adrenaline from playing. Yeah. Uh, and some people usually have to go. Like a lot of times right. – the older your players are, the more that they've got to get home. And so, like, you play to the last second. Everybody's like, that was so great. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. As you run out the door for your, yeah, yeah in my case, our drive home uh, <laughs> at midnight. But, yeah, so let 24 hours pass and then communicate as you did before, recapping the session from your eyes and then getting feedback on everyone from, from how it went. And you can do it as a group, but it also helps to individually talk to, to everyone because they may have something that they're not willing to say to the group that they will say to you. Uh, you know, it was great. I didn't like how, you know, Fred kept talking over me. So <laughs> is that something we can address? Yes, we will address it next time. And then continue that discussion of what the players want. Now they have some experience in what this game is like. They have more information on which to make their decisions on what they liked and what they didn't. So you can gather that information on how to move forward with the next session. Yeah. And I, I have a kind of brain where I really need to write things down or they don't quite exist. Um, and, and, and the act of writing down really reinforces in my brain what it is. And now I can tell it like a story. And, and that's almost what I need is I need to be able to almost be able to verbally say it, but I can't verbally sell it, say it until I write it down. So really important for me is if not that day that I've run, but really the next day, I must write down notes. And I, I usually do a one page synopsis of what happened. Uh, and I share that with the players. And by, by doing that, I hold myself accountable to getting it done, which is part of the way my brain works as well. So I write up my notes of what we did and I send it to them. And I do things like I underline all, underline or bold every proper noun, right? So names of places, the names of NPCs. Uh, that way it makes it easy to scan the page and find it. And then I actually three hole, I'll print it out. I don't, I'm not a printer much, but I do three, I, I do print these out and I three hole punch them and I put them in a binder. And I have that at the table. So I can easily go through and go, oh, yeah, it was session 12 where you met this person. Um, because I find that when I do that, I can go back to it more easily. Mm -hmm. and, the, and I can make that illusion of a rich world come true more easily because I have these notes established. And I'm not just leaving it behind, but I'm remembering it and I'm, and I'm able to communicate it. And also for the players, they often forget this. It also becomes great material for the one or two players you might have who really love to know the lore of the world and who like to keep track of this stuff. They will use that to then fuel their, you know, tracking of all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, and the final thing, really, it's a not, not game related per se, but just socially related is how do you think it went uh, in terms of maybe you invited a disparate group of friends. You have a friend from work and a friend from somewhere else and they're all getting together. You know, how did they mesh? Um, is, is it, even though, you know, D and D is a social game, it doesn't fix social ills that would be there if you were going to a concert or having a meal or, you know, playing, playing tennis or something. Uh, you know, if, if there is a conflict, a personality conflict that just isn't going to resolve itself, 
the game is a good social lubricant <laughs> in terms yeah. of getting together and people being able to, but it, it's not a panacea. You can't. Right. Uh, so if there is a problem, shut it down right away. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't drag it out because it probably won't get better if it was really standing out as a problem. Yeah. Uh, from yeah. the start. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, that's probably something I, I should think on more because sometimes I have done that where there've been players in my games that weren't super great. And it took a while for everybody to sort of admit that this particular person or, you know, maybe sometimes it's two yeah. people like are not super gelling. You know, we have mm-hmm. different styles and, and it's better to kind of address that up front. Yeah. And it's okay to switch players um, for sure. You know, yeah. but, but yeah. Um, what else do we, anything else we want to talk about? This I time, Sean. Yeah, I can't think of anything else in terms of just this sort of introduction to this topic. I think next time we should dig into what you should run, and then we can look at uh, some of the suggestions that were given when I asked on Twitter. If I'm a new DM, what do you suggest I should run? Mm-hmm. You can talk about some of the things that people suggested and look at them up close. Look at some of the... Uh, problems with them as well as what they're good at in terms of teaching the game or helping a new dm run a game for the first time excellent sounds good so with that i would like to thank all of our listeners we could not do this without you because without your ears these sounds we were making would not be heard Uh, and thank you to our patrons if you would like to become a patron of the show you can go to patreon.com slash mmp so, Teos, you do some stuff on social media, I've heard. Uh, where can people find that good stuff? Ooh, uh, my blog is alphastream.org. Um, this week, what am I talking about? I spent, you know, I spent all this time yesterday drafting it, and now I can't even remember what it is. Uh, but I've got something coming out this week that I remember being very excited about, <laughs> and my brain has vacuumed it out. Uh, that's the kind of weekend it's been. I worked on, like, nine things this week. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, alphastream.org, you can get that free guide to collaborative world design that we talked about. And you can find me on Twitter at alphastream. What about you, Sean? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. If you want to follow the podcast's Twitter, it's at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos. Being a new DM and all, what should we do now? You know, we are going to talk to our players about the types of monsters that they'd like to kill. And then uh, you know, delve into that during our session zero. Or also with your uh, therapist. <laughs> That's a great idea. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs>